I spent my college days throwing perfect passes and trash-talking BYU. And I spent my college career smashing Utah Utes' faces into the mud. I'm Jason Buck. And I'm Scott Mitchell. After our careers in the NFL, we still talk trash. But mostly to each other on our podcast, Rivals. We talk all things football, college, and NFL. A little bit about life and growing up rivals. Download it each week wherever you get your podcasts or on the KSL Sports app. Go Cougs! And go Utes! Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, Talk to us at Cordell and Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. This is part two of our interview with Richard C. Wilson. So many, so many good things right in there that you just kind of packed into one. So one is uh, one of my early on mentors, I should have said, is Jeffrey Gittimer. And he changed my life when uh, he said in a book that I read in college, I didn't even know the family office space existed yet, but he said, I'll give away my number one secret out of all my best-selling books. This is the number one most valuable paragraph, and all my competitors could read this, but I don't care because they're all too lazy to follow it. CEO of the Family Office Club, uh, author of the best-selling book in the family office space, number one podcast in the space runs tons of great events um if you missed part one please go back and listen and, and hear about all the stuff he's done um but richard when we uh when we were leaving off on part one we were talking about the value of actually having integrity and treating everyone like a real life person instead of you know sorting people as the people who matter and the people who don't uh-huh. um what's another one of your piece of advice for folks who they want to approach these alternate high net worth individuals and uh and if you know, you had a soapbox about here's here's something that uh, you really can't overdo. What, what's what's another one of those things? Um, another one that comes right after integrity, uh, but is somewhat connected, is intentionality. So um, Dan Sullivan is a mentor of mine, and I think that um, he has a saying, a quote that you know the most intentional person in the room wins. And it's not at the expense of anyone else. It doesn't mean anyone else loses. But when you're highly intentional about why you're giving a talk to a local estate planning group, or you're high, highly intentional about why you're traveling all the way to Denver to speak in front of some real estate investment professionals, et cetera, um, then you can be much more effective. You can say, oh, well, my, my big goal here is to earn some referral partners. So maybe I should have a handout. Or my big goal is to add as much value as possible to these individuals raising capital. So I should bring a worksheet so they can practically, they can implement the advice I have and leave with the practical worksheet completed versus all the other speakers that just get up there to PowerPoint and, you know, have some nice ideas and theories, but, you know, uh, the next speaker gets up and then people halfway forget about them. So being very intentional about every investor meeting you go to is one of them. And then another thing that's really critical, it took me 10 years of running the family office club and getting over a billion dollars worth of investment advisory agreements signed to learn this is that every deal that gets closed can be looked at through a lens of three different areas of trust. Um, and I see this as kind of trust curves. And the three areas would be trust in you as the executive and your executive team. It could And trust within your industry um, in the ecosystem. So again, it could be 
that um, they've known you for a very long time, but maybe they've never invest, invested in blockchain or never invested in self-storage or stem cells. They don't know the industry. And then the third area would be trust in the specific deal at hand. So if you've got a, a deal a self-storage unit on 8th Street um, for $5 million and they're local to the deal, that makes it easier. If they've invested in that actual deal and they're on the cap table now, obviously that makes it much, much easier. Couldn't get higher on the trust curve of getting to know that specific deal. So every time you go into an investor meeting, just know that if you're starting at ground zero, they don't know you, they don't know your team, they don't know your industry, they don't know the deal, then you know, you're going to be dead in the water or it's just going to take a very long time to convert them, especially if they're sophisticated or connected to a lot of deal flow. It's just going to be a rough meeting. You're not going to get a ton of momentum typically. Um, if you go into a meeting and they already um, know the industry very, very well, then they can quickly assess whether your deal has merit that should be rewarded with more energy and due diligence or not. And it's just going to be a better use of both parties' time. And so you want to really make sure you're going to as many meetings where people are already up one or two of those trust curves as possible. And that is why everyone starts with friends and family money, because they're so far up the trust curve on you or your team that they're willing to get by on those other two, maybe at a slightly lower level. And it's also why if you're raising capital for stem cells, you might go to a healthcare professionals, or if you're raising capital for something in a specific industry, the easiest way to raise capital would be to go to locals and people who have made money in that industry. So those three trust curves, I think, are really central. And I've never heard anyone else bring it up, and it just took me a decade to stumble on that. But I think it's a way to interpret what's going on and uh, walk into a meeting with high intentionality of what curve you're trying to move somebody up. Yeah. Well, I'd love to maybe uh, get, get your advice on something. So um, before the show, we were talking about how uh, my partner and I that used to run our energy fund – um, we're, we're looking at doing something really aligned with kind of the real estate investing he's been doing for the last 25 years. And, um, if, if we were your example client and we said, Hey, we want to, we want to work with, uh, local billionaires here in the park city area, um, and approach them on a thing where, you know, they, they buy an ideal asset for syndication and our team's coming in to, you know, maybe do a reggae plus offering or something like that. And syndicate it out at a at a more favorable cap rate and split the upside, something like that. Uh-huh. When you think about you know trying to gather the the different points you bought here, you know approaching families who have significant real estate holdings and and have that background, you know looking at assets that are that are regionally, um, you know regional here easy for them to to see how something like this is going to work and go do their diligence in person. Uh, what other kind of considerations would, would you tell us to be really thinking hard about in a scenario like that? Sure. One thing is I, uh, I wouldn't limit it to billionaires. And I think that um, some of the numbers are really interesting on this. So there are 211,000 professionals that uh, Bloomberg and WealthX and Financial Times, uh, this, this quote is from uh, WealthX, but 211,000 individuals globally who are worth $30 million or more. Almost none of these people are famous. Almost none of them would be on uh, in magazines and front page of newspapers, et cetera. These are under the radar. 99% of them, in my experience, it's not an exact statistic, but it's, they're virtually all under the radar. Um, then there are um, 55,000, I think it's 56,000 actually through WealthX was a quote of $100 million plus net worth individuals globally. And 
there's only 3,000 identified billionaires, and that's husband and wife combined. It doesn't count if uh, you've got two brothers or some cousins, and altogether you're worth a billion dollar plus. You'd just be in the centimillionaire category. But it's just important to know that um, there are you know almost 15, 16 times, a little bit more than 16 times as many centimillionaires as billionaires. And for most people raising capital, as long as they're ultra wealthy and they're 30 million plus, they're probably qualified enough. So I think if you think at the 30 million plus level and you think, where do these people congregate? What associations are they part of? What athletic clubs do they go to? Are they at the local Porsche club, uh, et cetera? So I'm always trying out different communities so I can just naturally meet more family offices. So I found a, uh, a place to live where instead of it being hard to meet family offices, it's more, more enjoyable, better weather, lower tax taxes. And just in my four-year-old's preschool class, there's several family offices. So I meet more pushing my kid on the swings at, at the park or going to the beach on the weekend, just enjoying time with my family. I meet family offices on accident versus it being a struggle to. So it makes where I live an investment and more enjoyable than where I was before. Another example is uh, being in a business owner club that you can afford to be in for the spot you're at. So I used to be in one that cost $7,000 a year. It was good. I made a few valuable contacts and then joined one that cost 25000 a year. Uh, the business grew in part because of it, but largely just the business grew overall. And now uh, I've been able to afford being in one that's a $50,000 a year membership. And I meet amazing contacts in there that have contacts themselves that are worth $30 million, $100 million plus. Most of the people in the group are worth $30 million or $100 million plus. Some are going to have big exits. Uh, some already have. So I think always playing around with um, different things that connect with who you are and where you are so you're naturally meeting potential investors without having to try too hard is really critical. And that, that includes where your office is based um, and different things you're passionate about. Um, you know, it could be a yacht club, golf club. I used to be part of a Bentley Rolls Royce owners club and it was not productive. So I dropped that one and I'm always experimenting with one or two. It's interesting, this idea of just physically being present at the watering hole where folks are, you know, there's, mm -hmm. um, the billionaire that Jackie Kennedy married after JFK was killed. Um, he said, uh, if he lost all his money, what he would do is go dig ditches. Um, and, uh, until he could afford a bowl of soup and then go eat a bowl of soup at the fanciest restaurant in the city, because that's, <laughs> that's where he could get, be in the physical proximity of the people who were figuring out what to do next. Right. And, right. Um, yeah, it, it is. It's, you know, it sounds almost too simple to like physically be, you know, just figure out how to physically be in the same room with those folks. And, and it's it, but it makes life so much easier than getting through how many gatekeepers and in the inbox with 300 new emails today. For sure. For sure. And I stole the strategy from my friend, uh, Thomas, who does the state planning. And he said that he moved to the poorest neighborhood, uh, no, the, the richest neighborhood in all of Chicago, but he had the most rundown junk tear down house. He could barely afford and was stressed out from the payments for it. But all of his neighbors were CFOs of publicly traded companies and founders and people that had exits. And over time, they became clients, and now he has one of the largest houses in the neighborhood, and he's got a 40-person team on his estate planning organization. And um, I heard that, and I said, wow, that's amazing. And when he had told me that, I was residing in uh, Portland, Oregon, which is pretty much the worst place in the United States for family office work. And um, 
I was paying a lot of state taxes and I went from having a very nice five bedroom house right next to Intel World Headquarters where my mortgage and interest taxes, everything was costing me 1500 a month. And I took the jump to move from that with my family and two kids to live in a three bedroom condo um, on an island outside of Miami and pay 4400 a month in rent uh, instead of 1500 for the mortgage. Um, but it's an investment now, um, and there's an ROI off that because of the relationships, you get to enjoy it more. And importantly, if you live in a high-tax state, the difference in 1500 a month and 4400 a month was paid for just in the tax savings. So really, Oregon paid me to leave. They said, we don't want you here. <laughs> You're a business person. Get the hell out. This is for cannabis and you know breweries and uh, you know uh, <laughs> organic hip hipsters that like him right so uh i just would point that out to some people say oh i can't afford that or like oh that's crazy or oh that's easy to say uh since you have a lot of uh, success now and a lot of money coming in now but i started with uh, 800 bucks in the bank account and a thousand dollars a month rent in harvard square in boston so uh everything that i'm talking about is things that you can use on a very small scale and then through a lot of hard work and effort build up over time well i'd love to hear a bit more about that um you know, what's funny is it's interesting that the principle applies no matter what you're interested in. You know, our we, for the last 10 years, we've had a charity called Child Rescue Association that combats child sex trafficking. And um, in the on the consulting side of things, uh, I was able to ask our military clients if they had any special ops folks they could connect us to. And we just started working a lot with folks from the intelligence community and the special operations community as clients and sometimes I was giving them deals and stuff like this because I knew that just the physical proximity, we were going to be able to recruit volunteers for our charity. And, uh, and it turned out extremely well. You know, it's right now our CEO is a guy who just got out of one of the classified units of special ops. And, uh, it was, it was, you know, I would love to say like, it's, Oh, I'm so charismatic. And we had such a good strategy for getting, you know, former FBI agents and central intelligence officers. Right. But right. it was proximity and just, you know, figuring out how to finagle the proximity uh, and then have like a real organic human to human conversation, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I would just uh, take away excuses for people to say they don't have time to do thought leadership. Because thought leadership really works. And you just get good at it by practicing and having the right intentions of adding genuine value. Uh, I'm not like an amazing public speaker. I know that for sure. Uh, but you get more articulate over time uh, as you get more practice. And that comes off better when you're in meetings or when you're writing an email. You can just be more clear in your communications because of the practice you've had in explaining what you do and what's going on in your industry. And then also, I'm very bad at writing. Um, I got my MBA, and I took some psychology courses through the Harvard ALM program, and my TA from the Czech Republic uh, spoke Czech as her first language, and she looked over my final paper that I've revised many times, and we sat down together, and I saw it was just covered in red ink, and her first question to me was, uh, is English your first language? And uh, <laughs> it is, uh, and she just destroyed me, uh, and I've written 13 books. I just use book editors. So you can use an excuse to do nothing, or you can run circles around your competition who also has excuses and uh, uh, you know just get stuff done and learn from it and then move forward and get a better version of this, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, shifting gears here a little bit, you mentioned uh, Dan Kennedy earlier as a mentor for folks who don't know him. He's probably, you know, the most well-known copywriter, um, uh-huh. excellent guy. Who are, who are other mentors of yours or who are other authors that, uh, that you're a big fan of? 
Yeah, uh, Dan Sullivan is actually my my biggest mentor. Um, I'm part of one of his programs. <laughs> Did I say and, Dan uh, Kennedy? But I actually followed Dan <laughs> Kennedy and studied Dan Kennedy, John Carlton, you know, Joe Polish, Dean Jackson, all those guys. I studied a great deal and I started my business. So I, I, I do consider Dan Kennedy as someone I learned a ton from. So it works. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for the mistake there. No, no problem. But yeah, Dan Sullivan, I, I love. Um, and it's instructional. I think I've realized why I've gotten sucked into um, the value he provides because for 42 years, he's provided value to medium-sized business owners, not startups, not publicly traded companies. So he's speaking to a very specific audience. And the same is true for if you cater to a specific investor type or a certain type of um area in the investment industry, if no one else is really adding as much value in that very specific area, and you do consistently over 10, 15, 20 years, no one else can compete with that. And that's just why I love Dan Sullivan. But, you know, early on, um, I was pretty heavily influenced by uh, Evan Pagan. He was a a mentor of mine. Um, Also, Brian Tracy, um, and then a bunch of other niche experts, you know, like a, like a rattle off earlier, you know, Gene, uh, Dean Jackson, Joe Polish. I just finished a, a book called Game Changers by Dave Asprey, and that's great. And then uh, every year I read a book called The Six- Success Principles by Jack Canfield. I just read one chapter a night during the first quarter of the year, and it kind of uh, resets my thinking. And every year I jot down little notes in it, and I interpret it differently, and I've got different goals and different challenges. So I find that book pretty helpful. Yeah. Um that's great. Appreciate the list. There's uh, a few of those I don't recognize. I'm gonna have to go home, go back and uh, Google them, look them up. Um, you know, you talked about starting out with 800 bucks in in the bank account and a thousand dollar rent. Um, can you can you tell people a few of the the war stories and the the you know not being handed the silver spoon and needing to figure it out at the beginning? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll uh, talk kind of quick so I don't bore people with it being too long-winded. But I remember, you know, my parents gave me money for tuition for college and rent, but not to do a bunch of fun stuff. I mean, I remember getting a, uh, a cheerleader's phone number in the cafeteria at my university, and I remember looking at my phone and I didn't have enough money to call her and take her out for a cup of coffee. You know, I didn't have three or four dollars to spare. And I remember thinking, like, this sucks. You know, uh, I definitely need to figure my stuff out and figure out how to be productive in the world. So I graduated early, got my MBA done early. My first job out of school uh, was making 100000 a year just by going to everybody in the Chamber of Commerce, meeting with them, telling them to give me a chance. All of them said, no, you need experience. No, you need experience. And I said, well, just, just hire me. You can fire me on day one if you don't think I'm great and I'm not working hard enough for you. And that's how I got, got my first job that um, – you know, that paid really well and paid for the MBA. But then when I uh, said, okay, uh, this risk consulting job is deadly boring. It paid well. I got my MBA. But what am I going to do now? Because I'm 21 and no one wants to pay me that much. I realized I had to work in commercial real estate or capital raising because it's eat what you kill. And that's all people care about is what you get done. So I moved to Boston, started working to raise capital for hedge funds, long only optimization shops, uh, struggled until I figured out that thought leadership can help and open were the you- doors. Were you with an RIA or did you get licensed or was it at a shop or how did that work? I was with a placement agency Hmm. and um, pretty fresh new to the industry. I'd done a little bit of college and college, some angel capital raising, um, but was pretty new to capital raising. So my principal of the firm was licensed. And he said, hey, Richard, make your 50 calls a day, follow up with the potential investors. You know, I'll be on the second conference call with you, et cetera. You do the first call with him. And I'll pay you for uh, money raised. And we eventually figured out a way to raise capital through a lot of, uh, you know, uh, learning by mistakes. 
And, um, but when it came time that I would be paid for the capital raise, um, I had by chance stumbled across the term family office. And I said, well, we should only be meeting with these folks because general wealth management firms don't have enough accredited investors. Typically, it can be a waste of time. And the big institutions want $300 million or $500 million of assets under management. So that's a waste of our time to approach. And I said, oh, well, it's really hard to focus only on family offices. I can't find them. I can't learn about them. But they're the perfect group to go after. So I started just teaching myself by sharing through a blog what I was learning. And the website started taking off. Got 100 hits a day, 500 hits a day. Got on the front page of the Boston Globe. And um, then my boss came to me one day and said, hey, you got to delete, delete this blog because, like, the media is calling and it could be a regulatory concern. And, and at the same time, he hadn't paid me for commissions from capital we raised. And I was like, well, that's an easy decision. So I left. And before I could get a job somewhere else, we started getting advertisers on the website and um, the business kind of took off by itself. But I, I guess one fun story is that uh, I remember the day we launched our first certification program. We offer online certificates on, on family offices, on capital raising, et cetera. And the first day we launched it uh, was right after I started the business. And we didn't have a study guide yet. We had never written a book yet. We had no video trainings, no audio expert interviews. But um, I was sitting in a burrito shop and I pushed send. And we brought in $35,000 in one day of revenue. And before that, I was working off a 50K base as a capital raiser. And I knew at that moment that I kind of sat back and said, like, oh, I've got something here. There's a real there's a real need in the market. And um, everything from then until now, over 12 years, has been just listening to what people want and identifying gaps and just trying to arbitrage the inefficiencies within the world of capital raising and family offices. So you think about that that huge leap there, right? Like... You know, for me, as a young guy, I went from making $1,700 a month selling Yellow Page ads in Tustin, California, <laughs> to, uh-huh. to a year later doing ten grand a month at Citigroup, you know? And uh, right. those, those, like, rapid accelerations are interesting, all the preparation it takes to eventually have the tipping point happen and get into the next thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but my question for you is, um, there's so many people that think you know, thought leader marketing or becoming the visible expert or, or these kind of things is a good idea. And then there's so few that actually reach a level similar to you where somebody says your name and people go, Oh, you mean the family office guy? Right. (laughs) Um, In your opinion, when you think about that going from 50,000 for a whole year to $35,000 in one email, what are kind of that, the principles of becoming, you know, the principles of digging deep into a small enough niche you can own and, and doing enough of it to actually gain the credibility? Like what, either a, what do you think the principle is? Or what do you think the mistakes are that people don't become? Why are they not becoming differentiated enough? Or why are they not really getting to the top of the heap? And they're just one more person with an opinion? Yeah, so many, so many good things right in there that you just kind of packed into one. So one is uh, one of my early on mentors, I should have said is Jeffrey Gittimer. And he (laughs) changed my life when I he said in a book that I read in college, I didn't even know the family office space existed yet, but he said, I'll give away my number one secret out of all my best-selling books. This is the number one most valuable paragraph, and all my competitors could read this, but I don't care because they're all too lazy to follow it. But my number one secret is that I identified a niche audience and then just added value to them once a week. And he said, if you do that over two to three years, you'll be a local expert. Over five, six years, you'll be a regional expert. And after seven plus years, you'll be a global expert. And I remember the exact moment I read that, I looked up and uh, I had a lot of energy but not focus yet. And I just remember telling myself, I'm going to be the son of a bitch that actually does it because he just told me I'm not going to do it. 
And so I had started businesses my whole life, but I didn't know how I was going to apply that concept. But I just saw it as like, this person is so successful saying this is his most important concept that his whole business was built on. And he went from 50K a year selling sports equipment to a 10 million plus a year uh, business, I believe is what he's at. He's one of the top 10 sales trainers globally, or at least has been for a long period of time. Um, and I thought, man, I have to use that idea somewhere. That's a golden nugget. So that's important. Um, also, defining a sandbox that you might have one or two other competitors in there with you, but it's a high-value sandbox. Um, if it has zero, if you have no one competing against you, you have to make sure that you haven't defined something so tight or you're so ahead of the curve that you're going to starve while you try to monetize because mm. it means it's not proven by anyone else yet. But you can get some comfort if you know someone else is doing it, but they're doing it in a different geography and no one's done it in your geography yet, but you're taking a model that has, has worked in Chicago or San Diego. Now you're, you're bringing it to Dallas and that can give you some comfort, but I would never ever get into a space where you are blockchain investment fund number one. And there's no huge differentiation between what you're doing and what others are doing. Um, you know, just not get in the ring with 172 other boxers because who knows who's going to be standing last. And it's going to be a long, bloody fight uh, and a lot of effort to be declared even one of the top 10. So you need to figure out exactly who you're targeting, figure out the, the, their headaches, their opportunities, where they are, where they congregate, uh, what do they complain about, what are they actively searching on Amazon.com, on Google, on YouTube, etc and then construct something that like the Hoover Dam is capturing the energy from that river of demand from a very specific investor type. And then if you can name what you're doing in a way that you look like the Excedrin and they want to grab it because they have the exact type of migraine that your formula is built for, then that can be really powerful. And that that's the type of stuff that we teach at our capital raising workshops. And I found that um, just about everyone starts raising capital because they're the CEO of an operating business, because they're the head of their investment firm and they're good at risk management or finding deals. Almost no one starts raising capital because they have a background in marketing, raising capital, positioning. So they're figuring all this stuff out from ground zero. And that's why, um, you know, your question is great. So I think that those, most people listening to this who are raising capital didn't think they ever would be. It's not what they went to school for. You really can't. Um, so there's this huge gap in the marketplace of, uh, you know, how to get it done, how to do so effectively. Yeah, I love it. Well, listen, I think everybody should be going to um, your uh, your familyoffice.com website and, and capital raising website, get the book. Um What's a, maybe to close here, what's a, what's one of the best pieces of advice that you ever got in your life? Sure, sure. Uh, before I forget, it's uh, familyoffices.com. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, we don't have both versions, not yet. Okay. But uh, it's familyoffices.com and then uh, capitalreason.com are the two. But your question was the uh, the best piece of advice. Yeah, what's, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever feel like you got? Hmm. Well, I remember going to Evan Pagan early on. Um, when we were just approaching seven figures in revenue, our second is our second year in in business, and I asked him, "What's the most valuable book I could read to give myself momentum?" And I remember him telling me that uh, reading the book "Mastering the Rockefeller Habits" and implementing the idea of choke points could transform what we're doing, and um, that has transformed transformed our business and really helped us uh, move forward. And uh, we're still uh, identifying and acquiring more choke points within our industry. And it's one of our core values is to, to identify and work on those and capture them. So I think that's that's one of the best pieces of advice I've gotten. You know, it's interesting what an effect the author Vern Harnish has had. Um, you know, I remember speaking at a, 
a YPO event that had a couple of centimillionaires in the room, and they both talked to me about that book. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Um, That's great. Yeah, it's an awesome book. I mean, I like it even better than the more uh, updated scaling yeah. up version yeah. that Vern has. You know, the original one, I used to make my whole team read it, and, and we we use a lot of those concepts in our business. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks again for making time for us here. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jess. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you'll remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.